Hello, John Schuler. Hello, Brandon Gore. How's it going on this beautiful concrete day? <laughs> it's going great, man. It's good awesome. to hear. It's good to hear. Every day is just so amazing to me. It is. So. I think we just lost half our listeners right there. They just. <laughs> They just Where are we going? changed to a different podcast right then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You're flying in tomorrow for the workshop yep. we have next week. That class is coming up. I mean, when you hear this podcast, you could still possibly, I mean, what is today's date? Today is uh, Thursday, February 17th. The class is Monday the 21st is when it starts, six-day class. You might be able to still be able to get here and get in that class. So if you want to make it, make it. And then we have a one-day open house, open studio demo day for Kodiak Pro on Monday, February 28th. You definitely have time to get here for that. And so uh, just put it out there. And if you're interested in the workshop, go to ConcreteDesignSchool.com. If you're interested in the open studio, go to KodiakPro.com. I just dropped a message. I just got a message from Martin Haddock that one of the guys from Gecko Concrete, I think it's Gecko Concrete, anyway, and Andy from the UK is actually coming out for Monday. So that's cool. That is cool. It's crazy. Yeah. Where I was going with that is you're, you're flying out tomorrow. Uh, I've had a lot going on my, my own self. I'm in the process of selling my property in Arkansas, which is crazy. So I've been tied up with that, but we didn't have time to schedule a guest for this week. So it's going to be just me and you. But we have a long Buddies. list of... I know. We have a long list of concrete topics to discuss. So this is going to be a really good podcast because we're going to talk about concrete and not about, you know, whatever. Weather. We'll stay away from weather. We'll stay away from the weather. Yeah, no weather report this week. Although it is getting ready to snow. It's getting ready to snow right now, dude. Next week is going to be crazy. I know. And then like Monday, Tuesday, my class is Monday, Tuesday. It's going to be like 67 degrees. And then Dusty's class is Wednesday, Thursday, and it's going to drop. The high's going to be in the low 30s, and it's going to snow. Yeah. It's going to be crazy. I guess I need to email to everybody and just let them know, hey, yeah. bring some warm clothes because it's going to be cold out. Put your shorts and flip-flops away. First of all, I'm just going to highlight the four things we're going to talk about today because these are the things that we've been in discussions with with people this last week. So those four things are material authenticity, number one. Number two is going to be mixed temp and ice loading. Number three is going to be using a double blade uh, paddle mixer, handheld mixer. And the fourth will be carbon float. So those are the four topics we're going to discuss. Let's just start it off with material authenticity. There's some discussions on Facebook. There was a post somebody asked about wanting to mix epoxy resin with cement and make a kind of a, you know, composite material and if that would work. And, you know, that's actually a product that exists on the market. It's used by flooring guys. They do a terrazzo type flooring that's a epoxy cementitious composite material that they pour and it self-levels and then they can polish it down. And it's really good for flooring. For sinks and countertops, I would think that at that distance, because a floor, you're looking at it from six feet away, a countertop, a sink, you're going to be sitting at a table. You're looking at it from, you know, six to 12 inches away and you're going to really 
A, see the difference, and B, you're going to feel the difference because you don't touch a floor very often with your hands, but you do touch a countertop, a table, a sink with your hands all the time. And so you'll feel the tactile difference. And I remember way back in the day, John, this is like 2005 or six, I was using EAP, I was using E32K, EcoTuff. I was using all these different topical sealers that were on the market at the time. You kept trying to get me to try ICT. But back right. then, ICT was in its very early days. GFRC was in its early days. They didn't play well together. They didn't react well together. You know, people weren't getting really good results at that time with ICT with a GFRC you know, liquid polymer mix that was very common back then. But you used to call me up and say, do me a favor close your eyes, feel this, the table you're sitting at right now. What does it feel like? Just feel yeah, What it. does it feel like? <laughs> mm, feels like Corian. You're like, exactly. Because you just <laughs> covered your concrete with plastic. So all you're interacting with is the plastic. And for, you know, all intents and purposes, you could have just poured plastic and it would have been the exact same thing because the concrete is below that layer of plastic. And so your big thing back then was, you know, concrete, you want to actually touch the concrete and not the plastic because it is a different tactile sensation when you feel concrete versus feeling plastic. Material authenticity is a very important topic of conversation and embracing concrete for concrete and loving the material for what it is and loving a real material. And so this goes back to, could we do an epoxy composite cementitious material and call it a concrete countertop? You could, but it's already been done. Corian already has, quote unquote, concrete the color concrete Orion, i think there's a sile stone i think there's a caesar a stone quartz version high max yeah, caesar stone that Avenite, they concrete they yeah, all there's, make there's a quite a few concrete or cement which is, uh, is my least favorite yeah. thing cement version that's supposed to look like a concrete countertop and from 20 feet away you're like oh that's a concrete countertop then you get up to me you're like no that's plastic with little specks in it right uh, it's yeah. not that's not concrete and i think that's the the kind of the real testament to material authenticity because concrete's real. And so if you want a real wood floor, you're not going to be happy with Pergo, but there's a market for both. There's a market for a Pergo floor and there's a market for a wood floor. You know, another good example is uh, pleather or leather. And in our house, we have, you know, a leather Eames chair that we're super cautious with the girls around because they're have markers and crayons and all that kind of stuff. But then we have a Ikea couch that we had like these faux leather seat covers made. It essentially just goes on the, the Ikea couch. And there's a place for that. The place for that is toddlers. You know, we have toddlers running around the house. And so, yeah, have pleather seat cushions. When they get a little bit older, we'll get leather because when you sit on a plastic couch, it feels like you're sitting on a plastic couch. It doesn't right. breathe. It doesn't wear. It doesn't age with time. It doesn't have that realness to it. It just feels like plastic. There's a place in the market. There's people that love plastic things. They don't want their house to ever age. They're the perfect client for Corian. But people that want concrete, people that want real leather, people that want real wood, that's material authenticity. And that's embracing the material for what it is. All right, John, your turn. Well, no, I agree with everything you're saying. And, you know, this just this one subject to me could be broke down into probably three or four facets to, as a part of discussion. So the first one for me, just the material itself. So discuss the material itself. I completely understand where the original posting came from. The idea was, and, and I agree with them, 
that so much of what we do was dependent on something, you know, let's say topical-ish, some plastic-like covering or coating of some sort. And so, you know, what would be the idea, meaning that's where the ultimate durability was. I think you and I have talked about that many times. So the idea was like, what, you know, what if we, what if there was a way to take this concrete, as we're calling it, mix something into the concrete, in this case, the idea was maybe a resin, still have the ability for multi-use, spraying, casting, whatever the case may be. But the idea was like, what if we did this to it and in turn took away from the idea of needing to coat this stuff in a plastic? Because I think most of us just do this as a living or, or not. You know, there's still this idea that, oh, it's the sealer, the Achilles heel kind of idea. So I get that point of view. So I just want to focus on that part of it for a minute. And I don't want to discourage people from having this thought process, but I'm going to walk back and just let people know I've been there too. I'm not going to lie. I mean, there's a, there was a long time ago that I looked at what I was doing with this distaste, if you will. And I don't know, Brandon, do you ever remember a company called epoxy.com? Mm. Did you ever work with them at all? Okay. No. I don't even know if they're still around, to be honest with you, epoxy.com. And I remember I worked with that chemist. I don't even know if he's, quite frankly, I don't think he's even alive. I know he retired. But anyway, at that time, worked with him on, a, on custom making something just like that, that could be added to mortars or concrete or whatever the case may be. And, you know, the same idea, like, how do I make this stuff more durable? And that was my big quest. Right. I wasn't really thinking about the water, the cement, the cement. No, no, no. How do I make this into something that, you know, doesn't stain? So I traveled that path. I really did. And along that path, what I found out very quickly was my personal venture, my adventure trying to solve this problem that I thought existed was not a problem that my customer base thought existed. So, I mean, this was like a huge epiphany to me, all the way back to when you just said, you know, you and I talked about ICT. So I embraced and started embracing more and more this whole idea of material authenticity from my own personal view. I had to put those things aside. I really did follow these paths that he was talking about and found out very quickly that, if I had continued on that path, I was actually ostracizing the client base, asking me to make what they wanted me to make. And that for me was a bit of a pill to swallow, but it really opened my eyes into what this material is, which then, let's say, went from my personal point of view and morphed into a business point of view. <laughs> like, who am I making this for? <laughs> you know what I mean? Who, who's asking me to make these materials and paying me good money to make these things? Did they want silestone? You know, was I trying to sell them on the, the plastic coating? And some people I did, you know, I had all the best reasons of why it was there, but also found out very quickly, like, no, this is not what the, so even me, my own adventure in this, I was not embracing the material authenticity. So. I can keep going, but I mean, where's your thoughts right now? You telling that story, I'm trying, I keep trying to remember the name of the architect, but in Phoenix, I have a similar, I'll tell you, it's a really short story. 
I bought the very first palette of Buddy Rhodes mix. That's a true story. Palette number one, BG bought it when Buddy started selling mix. And I had a palette of this mix. And if you asked Buddy back then, how much water did he put in? He would just spray with the hose into the mixer and go, eh, that's, that's about the right amount. Yeah. Buddy, is that, is that a gallon? Psh, eh, it looks good, right? That, that was the level of the instruction from back then. And so I got this first pile to mix. Plasticizer wasn't really a thing that anybody was, was using. And I remember I called Grace Chemical. They sent a guy out, like the Phoenix rep, and he brought like a five-gallon pail of a plasticizer because he's used to go to ready-mix factories. And it was like enough to last me for a year back then as a sample to try. But even he was like, well, we're used to dosing this for trucks. You know, let's just, let's just pour in a cup of it and see what happens. That was kind of his attitude. So anyways, long story short is I did this countertop for this architect using Buddy Rhodes Mix, overdosed the water, probably by triple, overdosed the plasticizer, probably by 10 times, and the mix obviously cracked like crazy. Thousands of cracks through the, through the piece. Now, they were non-structural cracks. It shrank dramatically and it had this crazy, like an old porcelain plate, the entire piece, right? And back then, I was using Buddy Rhodes Penetrating Sealer and a wax. And it wasn't the best sealer, but, you know, it was real. It wasn't a topical. It was a penetrating and a wax on top. So anyways, I made this countertop for the client. I installed it. He loved it. Loved it. I hated it. Because yeah. I knew this isn't what it's supposed to be. I can yeah, do better can than be this. better than this. Exactly. Yeah, I can do better. And yeah. so I told him, I'm going to replace this at some point. And so, I don't know, six months down the road. I had gotten the mix dialed in. I got a plasticizer dialed in. So now I'm, I'm casting Buddy Rhodes mix correctly, but I also found a new sealer. And I want to say it was E32K. I could be wrong, but it was definitely a topical and a high build topical, like a thick, thick plastic coating, right? Yeah. And so I cast this piece, process it. I apply, you know, I don't know how many coats of this topical sealer, build up a mass amount to it. I, I call him up and I say, hey, I'm going to pull out your old countertop and put in this new one. He's like, seriously, I'm happy with this. I'm like, dude, I'm not happy with this. So I'm just going to take it out and uh, put in this new one. And he's like, well, I bring clients over. I'm like, all the more reason to change it out. I don't want anybody in Phoenix seeing this and thinking this is what I do because it's not what I right. do, right? Yeah. So he's like, okay. So he's like, you know, I'm not there. He left a key. So I go to his house, open the door, pull the countertops out. I put them, I had a flatbed trailer. I, I just broke them to get them in my trailer because I didn't want to like strap them to racks or anything. So I just like broke them up and put them in the trailer, installed the new countertops that were coated in an eighth inch of plastic and looked beautiful, looked right. beautiful, but it was coated in plastic, you know, caulked all the seams. It looked great. I was super happy with it. I leave. He calls me up like three hours later when he got home, dude, I hate it. I want, yeah. my, I want my countertops <laughs> back. I'm like, what do you mean? He's right. like, it looks like plastic, dude. I was like, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. That's the best sealer on the market. You know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, I liked the old countertops. I'm like, dude, the old countertops, they were like, they had all those cracks in it and the sealer didn't work very good. I like, that was concrete. He's like, this isn't concrete. This is plastic. I don't like this, right? And I was like, well, I don't know what to tell you. I broke your old countertops up and I took them out and put them in my trailer. So that's not going to happen. Anyways, so he, you know, he was, he was good about it, but he wasn't, he, he didn't like him like he liked his old ones. And that always kind of resonated with me to some point. And that's kind of where we are today. You know, the concrete itself, we've gotten the mix and the plasticizer and the casting process and the curing process so dialed that we can make quote unquote perfect concrete, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when there are slight imperfections, little air pockets here and there on the side, usually on a vertical face, that's why you leave them because you need some 
little artifact to say this isn't Corian. It's always a good thing to leave it. But that being said, the sealer is where it's either fake or real, in my opinion. So if you coat it with a plastic coating, no matter what the performance of that plastic coating is, the customer's interacting with a plastic coating. You know, as a craftsman, we're the ones saying like, oh, I want to I wanna make this so it'll never age. It'll never, you know, show the, the pass- right. passage of time. But the, the day co- I install it, it needs to look exactly, which we all know it's not going to. But, but that's being, us. The client that's didn't us. want that. That's, the exactly, client could have gotten that. They could have gone Home Depot and yeah. gotten Corian today, installed tomorrow. Home Depot Agreed. will install it. 35 bucks a square foot, whatever the hell it is. Right? They could have yeah. done that. They didn't do that. Well, and that's the thing. I, the hardest thing for me to learn along this, whatever, 20 odd years that I've been doing this is to learn how to get out of my own way. And now again, this is my opinion because I know it still goes on. I'm going to preface this to be politically correct. I'm not here to tell anybody, anybody else is doing wrong or other materials that are being sold by companies or, you know, selling some kind of crap material that's wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I learned along this path was when I, and I went down the same road, long, especially in my early ICT days, when I just could not, there was something about what I was doing. I just couldn't accept it. I couldn't. Oh, I did this. No, I don't want it. La, la, la. And so, yeah, I, I used a lot of the materials that are currently available too. And what I found out along this path was, as I went and put these into clients' homes, I don't, it's, it's just not what they were looking for. And I'd get some of the, you know, I don't know, the sideway look sometimes when I handed a, an invoice. And, but a lot of that had to do with me. And I personally believe a lot of the information that's put out there by people sends us down that road a little bit too. You know, I, there are some companies out there that, you know, again, they're, they're, we're calling it a sealer, but they're selling the sealer based on this preface that it's going to, you know, make the concrete perfect, overcome all its weaknesses. And you and I call it a, a plastic coating. Well, that's the reality. It, is, it really is a plastic coating, good, bad, or otherwise. That information pushed us along long enough, even we begin or start off by accepting like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the right way to do it. That's the right way to do it. This is the way it has to be done. And, you know, it, it took me a while, but that's what I said, from my business. So that was all my own. That's again, like you, that was my personal side of it, my personal. Then my business, when I started really embracing this material, and actually giving clients what they were truly asking for, my business continued to flourish. I didn't go backwards. I, I actually got better. My, my prices began, my demand went higher. The, I could slow down my volume. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And I know I've been talking a little while, but Brandon, give me a second, because part of this road was an epiphany to me where I watched this story. I can't remember. It was on Netflix or or one of those kind of things. And the story was about this family who his dad, their dad rather, was a cobbler. I don't know, in New York City or something like that. That's what he did to support his family as they grew up. And as he raised his children, he was always trying to convince them, like, don't do this. Don't do what dad did. And because they lived, I'm going to say fairly hand to mouth kind of thing. And go to college, go to college was the big push. And one of the sons ends up going to college. This is all part of the story. 
And when he graduated college with a business degree or something like that, he came back and was so energized to take over his dad's cobbler shop. And his dad was so disappointed, like, oh, like, what are you doing? You know, I barely made it. You don't want to live like me. You know, you don't want to live like the way I provided for the family. You need to be, you know, something beyond what I ever was. And what this, the son ended up doing is took his dad's cobbler shop. He focused on quality, quality of the materials, quality of his craftsmanship and raised he elevated the bar, if you will, of the, the shoes that were being sold, where dad was still focused on, I'm going to say, you know, what he thought was meeting everybody's demand with, I don't know, a 20, 30, 40, $50 shoe. The son came along, started getting very authentic materials, started really practicing, you know, hand tooling and stitching and leather and next thing and he's selling for $500 and can't keep them in the shop. That's after watching that, that's when it hit me square in the face like what am I doing? I mean what am, I mean like realistically what am I doing? I was chasing the concrete. I was working like I said with the, one of the chemists that was just one of them by the way, epoxy.com trying to overcome all these things that I thought was the failure in the material I was doing. Uh, worked with all kinds of different sealers, too, along the way. Uh, I even, much to my dismay, I actually did one in a pretty heavy epoxy one time, you know, all shiny you know, with the epoxy. But that wasn't what people were asking me for. And um, once I, that whole thing hit my face, I think that was, again, about that time, you and I, when I was trying to even convince you, right? Like, Brandon, where's the authenticity in this, man? Where are we going with this? And so, I mean, to me, that was just part of the full circle getting to where I'm at. And, you know, and I know we ruffle feathers along the way. We certainly have been by calling the coating a plastic or, you know, like a cellophane wrap, if you will. And, and I get it. I, I truly get it. Carmody calls it a prophylactic coating. <laughs> prophylactic coating, yeah. Think of it like yeah. a condom on your concrete. And that's really the best way to look at it. That's what you're doing. You're putting a prophylactic coating. Carmody likens it to, and especially in America, cheese, the French were trying to sell cheese in America like in the 50s and 60s, and they couldn't get good traction in America, right, in the United States. And then plastic, the whole like better better life through science revolution and all these different plastics and polymers and technology mm -hmm. are coming about. They started wrapping cheese in plastic, single slices wrapped in plastic and cheese cells went through the roof, through the roof in America, in the United States. Now, if you go over to Europe, they hate single slice pieces wrapped in plastic, right? right. But in the United States, they do. And that's an American mindset. Wrap it in plastic, you know, let it be like, like the this. Like cheese, right? The exactly. Exactly. Cheese, yeah. But that's, that's, you know, Carmody, yeah. when, when uh, I've had him in classes before, he'll talk about it, but he likens that. That's a very American mindset. Wrap everything in plastic, make it, put in a time capsule and let it never age. That's an American mindset. The rest of the world culturally really values things that age, things that, right. that uh, settle into place and become part of the environment and don't stay like that for the next 2,000 years or whatever it is. Well, that's the difficulty with it, though, because... Now, again, I'm just going to talk about sealers. Those topical coatings, we all know, have a fair a life cycle. Let's just call it a life cycle. And that life cycle 
good, bad, or otherwise. I'm not here to like put them down. I'm not putting them down at all. But there is a reality to those things. And when when that scratch or or the wear through the coating happens, you know, what you're left is with a material that I think we can all agree doesn't age gracefully, if that's a nice way of putting it. You know what I mean? You end up with this straight line scratch and, you know, only that line is what ends up staining and it's and it's a little more difficult to repair. And even though you can, you know, fix the scratch by maybe, I don't know, you know, filling it in and buffing it out or something. I'm talking about the total project doesn't necessarily age as gracefully as something that that has gone the other direction. Focused more on the concrete, the curing techniques, you know, and then um, a sealing technology that doesn't overwhelm the concrete becomes part of the concrete. Uh, and and I realize it's a it's a way of thinking, and I think sometimes it takes people to come full circle to realize, you know, what, who they're doing it for, why they're doing it, how to make a business out of this, how to, how how to truly embrace it for what it is. And I realize not everybody's going to do that too, right? As you just said, not everybody wants authentic. There's a good point to be made to that. And that is there's different parts of the market that different types of concrete or coating serve. And there's parts of the market where a topical sealer is very well suited to, right? And there's a part of the market where it's not. It just depends on the client. Because I've been at trade shows, I, I've told you this before, but I've been at trade shows where, like home shows way back in the day in Maricopa County, I'd go to these home shows and I would have my booth set up and, you know, a very kind of clean, modern, zen vibe. Back then it was, when I started using ICT, so I had a, a, you know, a reactive sealer and everything was very clean. And then like three doors down, there was Quick Crete 5000, covered in like a quarter inch of epoxy with glitter mixed into the epoxy and there was acid stain before they epoxy coated it and they had like a thousand fiber optic lights blinking all over the place. Totally not my cup of tea, right? Like that, that look, but that booth was packed with people, people with money. People said, Hey, I want that. Right. They were oohing and on. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. I can't be mad at that. I can't like look down my nose and be like, Oh, that's garbage. No, that guy's, that guy's serving a part of the market that wants that product. Great. He's making a living. He's feeding his family. I get it. Good for you, bro. You're serving Mm -hmm. a part of the market. I'm serving a different part of the market that doesn't like that. So I make something different, but for us, Authenticity materials. I like real leather. This is me personally. This isn't this isn't law, but I like real leather. I like real wood. I like real steel and I like real concrete. That's just me. But that's not everybody. Everybody's not like me and not every client's like me. And so there's parts of the market where, you know, if you're using a topical, there's there's clients, that's the best sealer solution for them. So I get it. Yeah, I, I, I no question. Get it. No question. And, and that's where I get where he was coming from the, the whole idea, because I've been there. Yeah. I, there's undeniably, I've been there. I followed that path for a pretty good chunk of time. I don't, I would not call it wasted time. I even posted about that. It definitely wasn't a wasted time because it, it helped me grow as an artisan. It helped my business grow. It helped my client base grow. And uh, yeah, man, it was pretty cool. It, it, you know, but along that path too, just now let's just talk about ICT. There was a time Wait, when I was ITC. ICT. Did I say TC? ATT? Isn't it called ITC? Have I been calling it the wrong thing all this time? Indigo Charles Tom, Innovative Concrete Technologies, ICT. 
No, it's ITC. Did you call it ITC? You're, you're mispronouncing yeah, I, it. I C Indigo Charles Tom. I C T. No, 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 no. no, you're calling it the wrong thing. It's called ITC. No, I'm pretty sure. I went to no. the website once. It says ITC. <laughs> we <can> switch it. <laughs> Innovative technology concrete. Well, I don't know. I guess we could change it. I'm just messing with you. I always laugh because when I talk to people, they're I, like, "Are you using ITC?" And I'm like, "You mean ICT?" Uh, but it's it's weekly. I, I have somebody like refer to it as ITC, and it always cracks me yeah. up. Anyways, continue. Well, no, no, yeah. So following that same path back in the in as I was designing, I fell into that trap even from a sealer technology point of view. And I would keep I kept trying to push my chemistry topical, topical, topical. You know, film base, film base, film base. Uh, because I get it. Because again, that's what I thought everybody wanted. You know, meaning like, how do I sell more? How, how do I get more sealer in people's hand when they want to, when they want a coating, you know, and I'm pretty much one, if not the only one that's out there, that's not a coating being used. So how do I grow? But I found myself in the same trap was like, well, wait a minute, man. If I'm just, I don't know, I, I had a tough time dealing with myself, even at that time to say, and right, I've talked to you about it, Brandon. <laughs> Even you're like, eh, I don't know, man. <laughs> you know? Um, to then come full circle and then take my chemistry further the direction to maintain an authenticity of the material rather than thinking I'm satisfying something that's nothing more than one of, other, one of five other choices as a coding out there. Yeah. And, you, know, you know who and, the worst... You know who hates concrete the most? Yeah. Concrete guys. No, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Like, right. we are our own worst critic. We look at concrete with such disdain and judgment. You know, oh, the client's never going to like this. There's a dark spot over here. There's an air pocket right here. There's a, you know, if they use the spot for a long time, it's going to get a little bit darker. Yeah, it'll wear. We're yeah. the one. That's us. The client's like, I love that. That's why I chose it. But it's funny, like we, it's us, it's us. It's not the customer. You know, every now and then you get the one crazy customer that's just like, you know, off the rocker and they're just doing wacky stuff to the concrete and complaining about it. But by and large, 99.9% .9 of the clients I've had over the years have loved the material, loved it. Mm -hmm. It's been me and people like me that look at it with essentially, they're, they're unhappy with the material. It's us, not the client that's unhappy. No question. No question. And I think part of that too, and we're opening back into the materials, is us as concrete artisan, and I'm not saying we all have to know what material we're using. That's not what I mean. But I think even for us, sometimes we get into this mindset that, you know, we can use any kind of concrete. We just need a better sealer. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, should, why can't it be? And, and I, I even kind of understand that mentality because the reality is if you make a form, whatever size form that is, you know, whatever kind of mix, I mean, from a post hole cement and you put it in there, well, sure, it's going to get hard. And, you know, I guess a cup's not going to fall through it. I think I've said that a thousand times to people. So I guess I understand that. But then when you put us into our own selves, we're like, yeah, but that's not what we're trying to make. What we're trying to make, at least what we think we're trying to make, is this durable something that's going to last for this 
you know, 10, 15, 25 years, it's going to be amazing. And, you know, but yet we find it fall back into our own trap, sand, cement, a polymer, and, and then, oh, and then we're going to roll X amount of applications of the plastic over the top of it. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard getting out of our own way and then couple that with the information out there from different tanning facilities and material manufacturers or materials resellers or whatever, then still convince that path that that's the right path. You just, you, you should have used, I don't know, 4872H. Oh, that was the wrong one here. We got this other one over here that might be a different build or a different mix or whatever. Yeah. So, so I get it. I, I really do get it. And I, so I think for me anyway, it, it took me the whole conversation I just said, it took me getting out of my own way and really embracing the material for what it was. Now, clearly how to make it even as durable as it can be for what it is, that, that I'll go all day long with, as long as it maintains the integrity and the authenticity of what that material is. And that's been my approach now for I don't know. Again, I'm going to walk by that's probably, I don't know, a good 10 years ago or better when I saw that whole video with the, with the shoemaker and stuff. And, and it really hit me pretty hard. Well, I agree. And I think everybody has to find their own way and the path that they resonate, that resonates with them, that they want to go. You and I have been down different paths in the past and chose different routes, but that doesn't mean that those aren't correct for some people or, or their clientele. Obviously, this is, this is me and you being salesman right now, by the way. I'm going to be a salesman real quick, if you'll allow me. <laughs> Obviously, we believe that Maker Mix and Rad Mix make the best concrete possible. And then you seal it with ICT, a reactive sealer that works especially well with our materials to create the most durable concrete possible without coating it in plastic. And so that's just the path that we believe in mm-hmm. and we found success with and other people found success with. but if that's not the path for you, that's fine. Yeah, but let me, I'm just going to ask this question. And anybody la- listening, just ask this question. If I showed you, or if a client came to you, or you, or you went into a home, or a, I don't know, a, some kind of building of some sort, and walked in and saw steel, real wood, timbers even, you know, solid wood floors, stone, uh, rammed earth. I think we can all agree that that the perception is the client base that can, uh, that let's say pay for or afford this end of a market. I think it's safe to say they're also looking for authenticity, pure authentic, because they can afford it. Yeah. Well, luxury, luxury is real. Exactly. And if it, so, and I, I guess that's where it comes down to, to the other side of the business model. And I, you know, we talk to people all around the country now, all around the world. And often that question comes up so often, like, you know, how do I get to this customer base, whether that be a customer, a designers or an architects or the, or a homeowner, you know, how, how do I become part of this market that pays me, you know, what, what might you know, to feed my family and what I think my material's in. And, and I truly believe a big part of that is bringing something authentic to the kind of people that 
that value that authenticity in a material. Yeah. So they're not looking for a cheap Timex. No. You know, if that makes sense. I mean, what they're looking for is they're, they're looking for real steel and concrete and solid woods. You know, they're, they're not looking to build their, you know, their post beam house out of a bunch of laminated materials. Yeah. They're just, they're not interested in that. And so they pay that end of it and they are actively looking for those kind of materials. Well, so funny you say so, that. So let me, let me just tell you really quick, since I, I said in the beginning that I'm in the process of selling my property in Arkansas, we're looking at other properties to buy, right? Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of properties below a certain price point are fake stone, fake plank wood floors. You go inside, they have fake beams, they have fake stone countertops. Everything is faux. In those, mm-hmm. in those price points. They look nice from afar. They look nice in the photos. Sure. But when you actually go and tour them, you're like, eh, mm. it just, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same feel. Now you go a cer- above a certain price point, everything is real in that house. Everything is real. Nothing is fake. So yeah, you're right. If you want to get to that luxury market segment where you go from $50 a square foot to $150 a square foot, the, the way you do that is you make a material that resonates with that clientele. And what resonates with that clientele is a real material. At least that's that's what I have found. There's yeah. no question about well, it. I went to uh, I went to Portland last weekend to look at some properties, and I went to the bathroom in the airport at Portland, and they have ramp sinks. They're obviously trying to do concrete ramp sinks. Architect had drawn them up right, mm-hmm. but they done them with Corian, and a they looked they looked horrible. Like they looked like Mickey Mouse. You know, just when I, when I say Mickey Mouse, what I'm referring to is they just looked like fake cartoony in a way. But what was really funny was the drain assembly. They couldn't figure out how to do the drain. So they essentially just like did this wedge shape basin and they drilled a hole in the center and just stuck a drain from the bottom, like siliconed it on. So it's a ramp down to just a hole drilled in the middle of, yeah. of the seam. And I'm like, oh, but that's again, that's not luxury. That's, you know. Yeah. That's somebody trying to, to make an item that's real, but it's fake. And so had they gone to a concrete guy and said, hey, we want some concrete sinks, it would have been a, a whole different level of execution and authenticity and realness, but it would have cost more than whoever they hired that glued some plastic together and drilled a hole in it. Yeah, I, I, and like I said, I'll keep saying, I get it. Yeah. I well, really do get it. I get it too. We go, we go on this all day. I think we went on about it enough, honestly. I think you know where we, where we stand on this. And we can talk about it some more, but we got three more things to hit. So let's get to it. Okay. Next thing is mixed temp ice loading. So we've had a few people have some quote unquote issues with Maker Mix. They call us up, they're having problems. And then we start going through, what'd you do? Tell us, tell us the, you know, your order of operations. And what we found was they're casting far too cold, incredibly cold. And what they're doing is they're taking their ice loading, they're replacing a portion of the water with ice and doing it the same no matter what the temperature of their shop is, the conditions in their shop. So they're just arbitrarily doing 50% ice, this, this one person that we were talking to, whether it's summertime or wintertime. And by doing that, your mixed temperature can get way too cold, which will then essentially thicken it up. And John will talk a little bit more about chasing the plasticizer, which is detrimental at that point. What you want to do, the short of it is, you want to cast your mix. So when you're done adding the fibers and you're getting ready to pour it, check it with the digital thermometer. You want to be 55, 60 degrees. I like 60, not above 60, but between 55 and 60. And if you're at that temperature, it pours like pancake batter. It's beautiful. Now, if you get it too cold, it gels the mix up. It's no longer going to flow. So now you're like, oh crap, I got to add more plasticizer. Well, you shouldn't be adding more plasticizer. That's what you're doing. 
And if it's too hot than that, then it's starting to exotherm and you're, you're racing the clock. Yeah, you're chasing it on either end. The reality is you chase that mix. Exactly. But so, you control the ice. So this time of year right. in my shop, you know, we have this class coming up next week. We'll be 10 to 20% ice. We'll do 20% on the first cast. We'll check it. Yeah, if we're too cold, yeah. we'll, we'll back it down to 10%. And mm-hmm. if it's really cold, I mean, it's going to be snowing here, although inside my shop it's heated and my well is, you know, 1,200 feet deep, so it's consistent water temperature. But, you know, we'll, we'll still probably be 10 or 20%. But if you're in a really cold shop, you might be 0% ice, or you might be using warm water to get your mix to 60 degrees when yeah, you cast. Yeah, bring it up a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. So I'll let you go, John. Well, that's the two ends. The mi- when the mix is too cold, like I, I think one of them, he was like 38 degrees. He's like, and, and pretty proud of himself, right? It's like the old days. Ah, oh, if we could make it even colder or even hotter, yeah, it's got to be a better. But what happens at that is it, the mix thickens. The plasticizer isn't efficient as efficient at those temperatures and air does not outgas out of the mix as efficiently at those temperatures. So what happens and did in this case is then like, Oh man, I probably just need a little more plasticizer. So then you add more plasticizer and then you're like, okay, maybe it does wet out a little bit more, but you're also trapping more air. So you're chasing it. Now, once you cast it and like, woohoo, yeah, yeah, I I did get it. Well, the air is not, I mean, with these kind of mixes, the, the air should almost like boil out of it. <laughs> it should just run out of it. I mean, between the defoaming agents and the particles themselves and the, you know, the packing techniques, it should almost like, you know, as it's pulling on it, so the air should just escape like nobody's business. And if it's not happening because the mix is too cold and it's thick, then you trap it. Then the other problem happens is you've actually over plasticized. By adding more plasticizer, you think you were overcoming it because it was too cold. Now, once that mix starts heating up, oh my God, you, you, it's really hard with maker mix to get it to separate. But what you can do is you'll float some materials. Um, the fibers won't stay as efficiently, you know, um, throughout the matrix and, and some things that happen that you didn't want to happen. And so again, you're just, it's creating the own problems, just like, like if you go too hot and now it's not mixing efficiently and now you're adding more plasticizer. Um, the longer you mix, you're actually adding more shear. So you're compounding with more heat and yeah. So the realities, I say 50 to 60, but 55 to 60, anywhere in that zone, is optimal for plasticizer, water, air release, um, open working time, the whole nine yards. Yeah. So that's where you want to be. Not yep. higher, not lower. So yeah. keep that ice dialed. Take it up and down. And that actually, that goes for most mixes. I mean, anybody else listening out here like, oh, once again, they're talking about maker's mix. Well, yeah, maker mix is a fine particle mix. So you know, this is a must. This is an absolute necessity and we won't back down from it. But I'll say the same thing. Anybody doing those kind of things in their shop using other materials, well, now you just, if you're listening to this and you found some times where your air is harder to get out, whether you have a defoamer or not, and the, the mixed temperatures we just gave is really optimal for any of us working in shop settings. So mixed temperature, that, that is extremely important. That brought up something else. When, when you're talking, we had another person hit us up that mixed temperature is part of it. They're doing 50% ice. They're also slaking their mix three times. I think where people have been led astray, and maybe it's us too, because we are calling it slaking. So 
in the mortar world, mixing up mortars, I think most people will have this idea that, you know, one, two or three slakes actually really does help the mix. Because in those mixes with high polymer loads, the idea of slaking is breaking that polymer and potentially increasing your work time and et cetera, et cetera. With fine particle mixes, sometimes, and I know not people don't th- look at it like I do, but it's probably really considered more of an induction time. So during that period of time, 10 minutes, now you can go a little bit longer, 11 minutes, but you don't want to go shorter. Five minutes is not enough. The idea of this induction time is that once water hits, there is, comparatively speaking, a million times more surface area in these fine particle mixes than there are in your standard mortar type, you know, uh, polymer based mixes. So the induction time or what we're calling the slaking time is actually set so that the wetting ingredients in the mix allows for all the particles to technically wet out, which we talk about as an absorption ratio. So if you cut that time too short and all the particles don't technically get coated with water or you do it two or three or four times, well, now you've already satisfied it the first 10 minutes. Now you're just potentially kicking the mix off because it's going too long. So the reality is that that 10 minutes, that's what it's really about for this mix. Yeah. It's to allow for the induction time, the wet out time, the uh, satisfying absorption ratio time. We just call it slake. Yeah. So I think where a couple guys, whether they saw it in a video or not, I, I know they think they saw it in a video and maybe they saw another material in video, but the idea of slaking, I think that's where they even led themselves astray is because they were thinking of your basic mortar with a high polymer load and by breaking it a couple times actually helps it be more creamy. And no, that, that doesn't happen with fine particle mixes because that's not really the idea behind it. Well, I've heard just, just through the grapevine that some of our competitors teach multiple slakes with their, with their process. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that because they're using high polymer loads. So I could see that. Yeah, and a totally different mix design than ours. And mm-hmm. so that could be beneficial. And there's a lot of the information out there that once you get to this end of mixes, a lot of information does not cross-correlate. It's just not going to Yeah. at all. You know, like we've talked about with plasticizers that may work effectively in these kind of things, but no, they're not going to work at all <laughs> in this mix. Or you know, at what point you add water or what point you add fiber. I mean, there's a lot of things that just do not cross correlate. And one of those in this case would be your standard idea of slaking. Yep. I agree, John. So the next thing on our list is using a double blade handheld mixer. In past podcasts, I've discussed my aversion to double blade mixer because I'm using AR glass fiber and a double blade mixers essentially have a scissor action as the blades cross each other where they almost touch or within like a millimeter of touching and they shred AR glass fiber. So that's Mm. number one. That's why I don't like a double blade mixer. The second part of a double blade mixer is there's no safety ring on the bottom because there can't be because they interlock as they spin. And so you chew up your buckets. And I've had that. You got to be more burly with it. That's for sure. Yeah. If you you grind along the bottom of the bucket, you're going to chew the plastic up and it's going to end up in your mix. And I've seen that happen. That's why I like a single blade. I think they're safer. 
They don't chew up your buckets. And as far as the type of fiber I use, AR glass are a lot safer for that because there's much less chance of them destroying the, the fiber. We've had a few people this week that we've talked to that are mixing maker mix in five gallon buckets or rad mix in five gallon buckets right. with a, a dual blade mixer. And the problem with that is in that small little container, they're generating a ton of heat with the shear of the, there's not much material in there to begin with. And right. you're spinning it in this enclosed space, super tight space and generating a ton of friction and creating a lot of heat. If you're going to use a double blade mixer, my advice would be you can mix up to 250 pounds in a, a large uh, polymer mixing bucket that you can get a you know, tractor supply or any place like that. You can mix up 250 pounds. I've done you know, five bags of maker mix and you can use a du- double blade mixer for that. And it's going to have a, a lot more uh, material in there to help disperse that heat. And it's not in that super well, and the air. Space. I think one and of the, air, the ways yep. to look at it, you know, I shouldn't call it trapping, but in a way you're trapping both of those you know, almost like your, you know, your beater mixer that you use for air. baking. Yeah, you're just yeah, injecting so, a ton of air into the mix that's, that's unneeded. Yeah, and this little, I think it's only like, what, 11 or 12 inches, right? 12-inch circle to, to come out with. And, you know, you're talking about a, a, the mix being, I don't know, somewhere between 10 to maybe 12 inches deep in that five-gallon bucket with most of the paddles taking up quite a bit of that room. You take that same mix, even with the same mixer, I actually picked up a double paddle mixer. I still haven't pulled it out of the box yet. (laughs) Once again, man, I'm so used to my single paddle with a little ring. Every time I look, it's a brand new. I still haven't even opened it up. But anyway, that's a whole nother thing. When you take that same amount of material and take it from a five gallon bucket into a 17 and a half gallon bucket, or what I call a muck bucket. I have a 30 gallon bucket that I got from Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. It's an entirely different animal. It, it, the 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 shear changes, the the way it mixes changes, um, the flow changes. It becomes an entirely different mix, and I th- all mixes would be not. We're not just talking about maker mix, but when you trap something with that much shear in a, you know the dual paddle mixer in a five gallon bucket with fifty, well, almost sixty pounds. Once you add you know water and fiber in the whole nine yards. You know, you, that's a very consolidated, high whipping style. So it, it's just something to consider. I personally wouldn't advise it. I, I would say go get some 17-gallon muck buckets, pull the same thing off. You know, now you could do two bags, and so 100 pounds at a time rather than 50 pounds. And ultimately, you'll, the mix itself will be better. Yeah. whatever that means. And you'll notice what better means when you move it over into something a little more spread out. And those buckets, by the way, I picked you up some today, John. I went to Tractor Supply. I know. I'm excited, man. Brand new. I feel, for whatever I feel... reason, you don't like my Colomix buckets. You always complain <laughs> no, about them. <laughs> I feel bad because once I do my style of mixing with those uh, low sides, I feel like I'm just slinging concrete all over your shop. So I like the taller yeah, ones yeah, because yeah. they hold the mix in. Whatever. That's all. So I went, I went to Tractor Supply today and awesome. bought you the buckets. And so anybody listening, they're Fortiflex, F-O-R-T-I-F-L-E-X, Fortiflex brand. They're $23.50. And they have them at Tractor Supply Company. I'm sure any uh, farm co-op store will carry something very similar. But that's the kind of bucket similar, you want to get. Yeah. Don't, nice, don't, 
Nice round bottoms. Yeah, exactly. round bottom. Don't go to Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart and get the buckets they have because the, the plastic they make those out of will be great for ice and beers on a weekend. But if you try to mix concrete in and lift it up, they'll just break and all the concrete will go everywhere. So And black. I would say focus on getting black. Yeah. They come in blue and red and I think a green. But, you know, if something does in your mixing process, you know, shear a little piece... You know, a black fleck is so much easier to write off than than a red one or a blue one or a green one showing up in the concrete. It's very true. So, Good point, John. Yeah. This tip is brought to you by KodiakPro.com. <laughs> Kodiak Pro, the finest concrete in the world. The finest concrete in the world. <laughs> For a good time, make it Kodiak Pro time. There you go. There you go. So that tip of the day is brought to you by Maker Mix. So the last thing we want to talk about is carbon float. And this is more a you thing than a me thing. Cause I don't, I, back in the day I used to experience carbon float, but I haven't had any issues with carbon float since the change to these products we have now. Right. So that was something I used to no, experience right. with Adva 555 and Buddy Rhodes ultra seals mix. It, it was very common then, but I haven't experienced it now, but what do you want to discuss about carbon float? Well, it goes back to even the other things we've been talking about today, other than material authenticity, uh, mixed temperature, plasticizer, dual paddle mixers. I mean, it all, it all kinds of goes together. Now, carbon float, what does that mean? Carbon, if you, anybody listening, carbon black, you know, carbon black is very light, comparatively speaking. Black oxide is heavy. So if you ever pick up a bucket with 20 pounds of carbon black versus, you know, 20 pounds of black oxide, what you'll notice, you'll look in the black oxide bucket and be like, hey, how come it's, you know, almost empty because it is substantially heavier. So the question came up was he was casting some materials and com compared to another artisan who was using the same loading of materials, why is his so much higher in richness in black where mine kind of looks like an offbeat charcoal? John, I, I don't understand what's going on. So his first thought was, is it just because I was doing an SCC mix with a higher plasticizer loading versus someone who was doing more of a hand placing with still a fairly high, but not as high as he was? And the answer is yes, but it's a lot more complicated than is this just a plasticizer question? So ultimately, it also goes to the pigments you're using. So carbon black being lighter, black oxide being heavier, he was trying to use a one-to-one -one in his mix. So like five grams to five grams. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but what is happening based on his high plasticizer loading and so forth is ultimately the carbon black was floating so he could help fix that a little bit by changing the ratio of the black to the carbon black. And then ultimately, when he gets to that end, because he wants to use up his materials, I would, I would move to a, let's say, I think it's called Jet. I would go to a Jet Black Combo. Brought to you by CodiacPro.com. That has already taken, you know, four different particle sizes of black and put them together specifically to combat this and also to increase richness of color. But I totally understand that's what he's doing. So that's one part of it meaning his 50-50 ratio. So let's work on that. Two, yes, 
but again, more complicated. It's not just that the high plasticizer loading, it's when you run, let's just say 1% TBP, and we're just using TBP as the example here, 1% TBP, or the higher end is like 80 to 85 grams is what we described. So when you run that in and your mix temperature is low, what happens is you open up the open working time because the higher end retards the mix a little bit. It's nature of the beast. That's what happens. Now, if the mix is colder and you open that time up and then you have a pigment with a higher potentially to float, ultimately ends up you know, a longer. So now it has about an hour to float than 20 minutes to float, if that makes sense. So it's, it was a combination of factors he got going on. So number one, yeah, my recommendation was back his plasticizer down just a little to maintain his SCC consistency. That'll help tremendously. Two, modify his ratio. So instead of a one-to-one, go much higher, like a three-to-one or four-to-one black oxide to carbon black. And then here's one more recommendation. He, he's in a colder environment in his shop area. So my recommendation, and he has heat blankets, is you go out and you warm up the forming material that you're going to cast into. So that way, when you hit your optimal mix temperature, 55 degrees, and in this case, you're just pouring it in because he's doing an SCC style, what'll happen immediately is the warm forms, okay, the cold concrete is going to suck the heat out of those forms pop up the temperature pretty quick in the concrete itself, lower that open time, because you don't need an hour for it to be open, and then ultimately that creates a stability in the mix too, and it shortens that window. So those are the three things that I threw at it. These tips brought to you by KodiakPro.com. For the finest pigments. For the finest pigments. By ITC. Don't forget about (laughs) ITC. For the world's finest pigments, go to KodiakPro.com. Yeah. yeah, these are all good, uh, good tips from a free podcast. No, so it was certainly cool because it was funny because once I walked through these steps with him, then he was like, you know, John, that makes a lot of sense, and this is why. And I guess he actually tried increasing because carbon black is con- the stronger pigment. It's about yeah. 10 times the strength and color than the black oxide. So he ran everything the same as he was doing, and he ran a higher carbon load, but it didn't get darker. And he's like, yeah, I just didn't understand. But now he understands. So it really should have gone the other way. His black oxide should have been the higher. The ratio should have been different. Lower your plasticizer a little bit. And then finally, you know, figure out a way to kick the mix off just a little bit quicker. You know, something that you brought up a long, long time ago, because there's a misconception in the industry, the concrete industry, not necessarily countertops, just concrete in general, that carbon black pigment is UV unstable. No, it's incredibly stable. Exactly, because they use carbon to carbon date things. Carbon is extremely yeah. stable. The problem is, it's such a fine, small particle, and concrete has pores that in time, just through you know weather erosion, especially in outdoor concrete, those small particles wash out of the, the, the surface. Yep. And that's mm-hmm. why when you see, like a, especially in Arizona and Phoenix, there was a lot of exterior concrete for commercial projects that were pigmented with carbon pigment. And initially they were super dark. 
super dark. But as the years go on, they turn into like a light gray because mm-hmm. over time, they, the, those pigments wash out of the surface and that's what happens. Yeah. So the thought process was that the pigment was fading and no, that, that wasn't what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually another black called super black. And this is one way that I you know, started again. It's one of the ways that I look at how to increase total density or where the total density and mix is going is you get an even finer particle that should wash out even easier. And once you get to the point that that is stable and cannot leave the system, that's when you know you've created a stability that even the finest particles can't wash themselves out of, which then goes another direction would be, you know, uh, reactive sealing technologies that go in and also chemically lock all that stuff in and makes it far more difficult to erode or wash out. Stable Black brought to you by ITC. There you go. The finest sealer. ITC. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it all. Yeah. The time. Weekly. I gotta change it around. I hear somebody say ITC. Uh, I'm here to please, man. I'm call it whatever. To everybody. As long as you buy it, we don't care what you call it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think this is a good podcast. Yeah. We covered a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of information, a lot of tips and tricks. I'm I'm excited about it. I'm always excited. Yeah. Nice to talk to you, Brandon. I'm gonna see you here in what? Tomorrow. Twenty twenty four hours. I'm looking forward or to, I think his name's Andy from the UK. Now, how did he even get in? I thought everything was still on. You can't run back and forth. Dude, I, like I said, I flew to Portland uh, over the weekend and every flight was, there wasn't one seat available on any flight. Hmm. The airports were packed to the gills. I mean, just completely packed. The airfare's back 100% and I'm sure international's been lifted. So yeah, I don't think there's cool. any issues. Awesome. Yep. Well, then I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Nice to be around everybody again. Yeah. Drop some of the stuff. Yep. Right on, man. All so right, buddy. I'm going to say my last point, though, my, my last point for anybody listening. Take a moment, wherever you're at, focus on getting out of your own way with this material that we're making as concrete and find your happy place to, to work with the authenticity of the material. And ultimately, I think you'll find your path to success easier to achieve. All right, buddy. Well, let's do uh, let's do this class next week. We might have a podcast next week if we have time. We might not. We'll have to see how that plays out. But uh, one way or another, the following week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled program. So. You know what we should do? We'll do a live broadcast around the fire pit. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> None of that should be recorded ever. So, yeah. All right, man. All right, buddy. Good talking to you. Adios. Adios.